Well, good morning. It uh, really is a privilege to be back, so thank you so much for having me. As you see there in your program, the text for this morning's sermon is 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read that now, and uh, we'll get right to work. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. To be a Christian is to become part of a new community, a new family, the church. And for some of you, that's exciting news because you're an extrovert. And the idea of being part of a new family, a new community is really exciting because you love being with people, meeting new people, and you get a lot of energy from that. If you would, the extroverts among us are those who are the life of the party, and they're really excited <clears throat> Excuse me, about those opportunities. There's others of us, though, who are introverts. We have never been to a party. And we are people who perhaps when you hear this news about being brought into a new community, you feel very much like, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. It's just, I'm sorry, I should have brought that up. Thank you. <clears throat> excuse me. So this idea for some of us who are perhaps more of a, an introvert kind of bent, this idea of being brought into a new community and a new family can feel perhaps draining or exhausting. So some of us are really excited by the prospect. Others perhaps are less so. But this morning as we come to this text, what Peter is telling us, and really what many parts of the New Testament teach us, is simply this. Whether the idea of community excites you or not, the fact is to be a Christian is to be part of a new community. To come into a relationship with Jesus is to come into a relationship with brothers and sisters. So this morning, rather than try to convince you that Christian community is an exciting or a fun thing, what I want to do today is look with you at this text. And in this text, Peter tells us four things about what this new community is that we're already brought into if we've come to Christ. So four things, whether you feel like Community excites you, or maybe it's less so, but this vision of Christian community that Peter gives us is quite powerful. Like I've said, there's four things. Rather than give them to you all at once, I'll give them to you as we go. 
So the first point that we learn from this text about what this new community is, you become a Christian, you become part of it. The first thing that we learn is about the interdependence of this new community, the interdependence of this new community. Now, what do I mean? The members of this community, Peter says, depend on each other. And to illustrate what that dependence looks like, Peter gives us two images. And if you follow along as I read the text, you saw that there's a lot of images and metaphors. And particularly, there's two. First, Peter says, the dependence of this community is like stones in a building. And then the second is like members of a family. So in order to understand what it means that we're a community of interdependence, let's look at those two images. First, stones in a building. Uh, the question you have to ask when you come to a metaphor like this is, what's being built? If Peter says each of you is like a stone in a building, what's being built? And the answer is there in verse 5. What's being built is a spiritual house. And in order for that spiritual house to be constructed, Peter says there's two kinds of stones that you need. You see there in verse 4, Jesus himself is the living stone. And then in verses 6 and 7, we learn that Jesus is a precious cornerstone. Now, wonderfully, in our music this morning, we heard a lot about the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Well, from an architectural perspective, the cornerstone is the foundation stone. It's the stone that is part of the building that gives unity and stability to the entire structure. Said simply, without the cornerstone, the building would not exist. And Peter says, in this great spiritual house that's being built, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the heart of this new structure. But then Peter says, as you see there in verse 5, you also are living stones. That is, every person who's a Christian, every person who's placed their faith in Christ, is now built into this new structure as a living stone. So that's the metaphor, that's the image. Jesus is the foundation. If you would, he's the most important stone. But then each Christian is then built into that structure, built into one another as a stone, as a living stone. And together, resting on Christ, we make up a new spiritual house. That's the image. So what we have to ask now is, okay, that's the metaphor, but what is it illustrating? What is it pointing to? What does it mean? And the answer is simply this. Nobody who's constructing a building takes a pile of stones, a kind of unconstructed pile of stones, and leaves them in a corner and says, oh, look, there it is. There is my structure. That's modern art. But that's not a building. Uh, The way in which stones become a house, the way in which stones become a building, is they have to be put into close, tight-knit relationships with one another. They have to be built in. They have to be formed together. What Peter's saying is that you each, in order to be constructed into this beautiful house that God is building, must be built in into close, tight-knit relationships with other living stones, with other Christians. Peter's saying you must be in community. You must be in small groups. You must be in these kinds of close, tight-knit relationships in which people know your name. They can ask you difficult questions. You see, the idea of a stone in a building, if you think about it, every stone that's in a building is both supported and is supporting, right? A stone in a building has other stones that they support. But every stone in a building is also being supported by someone. And Peter's saying, 
Who are you supporting? And who are you being supported by? This idea of being built into one another like a living stone means at least, at least, that being a Christian requires more than weekly attendance at a large gathering. Because the kinds of things that Peter says stones in a building are called to do are really not possible unless you're gathering together in smaller, tight-knit communities. That's at least part of the image. It has to be. And this is, in many ways, difficult for us to hear, and I'd be the first to admit it for myself, because Western culture, particularly the culture that we inhabit, really takes great pride in being self-reliant. We don't just try for self-reliance, but we take great pride in it, not needing others, not needing to depend on other people. And yet Peter's saying this new community, this new family that you're brought into is one in which, like stones in a building, you absolutely need one another. In other words, Peter's saying, on your own, you're as significant as a stone is on its own. Stones realize their fullest potential to the degree that they're built into close relationship with other stones, or in our case, with other Christians. Now, that's the first image, stones in a building. But at this point, we must ask the next question, well, what's the nature of that relationship? Okay, so we're stones in a building. We're supposed to be in close, tight-knit relationships. But many of us have close relationships with lots of people. For example, perhaps you're part of a club, right? You have a hobby and you have a club of people who share that interest, so you get together. Or maybe in your job, you would describe your working relationship as close relationships with lots of people, coworkers. So the question is, what is the nature of this kind of relationship that we have in the church? Are we like members of a club? Are we like coworkers? The answer is no, we're not members of a club, we're not co-workers. We're actually, as Peter says, members of a family. You see there again, verse 5, Peter says this thing that's being built is a spiritual house. But you know, don't you, that the purpose of any house is to become a home. And home is family. And what Peter's saying is the relationship that you have in the church is like members of a family. And here's why that's extremely important. I have a younger brother. He's one, uh, two years younger than me. And when I was one, my parents did not sit me down and say, Hey, Bijan, we're thinking about having another child. And we'd like to get your input on this because it's going to really affect you. Uh, because, see, Bijan, we know that you're one right now, but you're going to get a little bit older. And you're going to be conscious of things. And you're probably going to have to share a room with this sibling, this other child of ours, if we have one. So you're going to be in close space with them. And then when you get a little bit older, you're going to have toys. And your sibling is going to take those toys and break them, probably, or lose them or ruin them. And then when you get a little bit older after that and you have your own friends, Bijan, and you think you're really cool and you want to go hang out with your friends, your younger sibling is going to want to come along. And there's going to be all kinds of tension and complexity in the family because of this conundrum. You want to go hang out with your friends, but he wants to come along. And then... When you get even a little bit older and you have real responsibility, your brother's problems are going to be your problems. Your brother's joys are going to be your joys. His sorrows, your sorrows. So, one-year-old Bijan, would you like to have a sibling? Would you like a brother? That's not a conversation that my parents ever had with me. They just sort of sovereignly went for it. And now I have a brother. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that a family relationship is completely binding. You don't opt in or opt out. It's a gift that's given to you and you belong. Because you see, if the relationship in the church was like being members of a club, hobbies can change. If it was like being co-workers, you can leave a job or a job can be terminated. But family? That's a forever and a deep relationship. Admitting, mind you, that lots of our relationships in our families are difficult. But they're still family. And what Peter is saying is the kind of relationship that we have in the church is that of brothers and sisters. We're members of a family. You don't opt in or opt out. You belong. There's an inherent dependence in a family relationship. And that's exactly the kind of relationship that we have here in the church. It's an interdependent community. That's the first thing that Peter tells us. Stones in a building, built into one another, members of a family, depending on one another. So that leads us then to point two, and the second question. If that's what we are, a community of interdependence, the second question that we can ask is this. What is the purpose of this new community? What is the purpose of this new community? And... The answer comes to us in verses 5 and 9. Peter tells us, if you look at those verses, this community is to be a priesthood. The purpose of this community is to be a priesthood. Now, of course, priesthood is an Old Testament image, and it's meant to communicate this. The church, or this body of believers, this new community, is supposed to inhabit its society, its town, its city, its world, in the same way that the priests did inhabit their society in ancient Israel. So how did they? And the simplest definition of a priest that I know of is this. Priests are those who represent God to people and people to God. That's what a priest does. A priest is somebody who represents God to people and people to God. And what Peter's saying is in your world, every single Christian, every single living stone, every member of this community is now a priest. And your purpose is to represent God to your city, to your world, and then also to represent that world back to God. What does that mean? It means a couple things. Uh, First, priests were supposed to be holy. Now, holy is a religious word. It's kind of a jargony word. What does that mean? Well, to be holy is to be set apart, to be devoted to God. And Peter's saying that as a priesthood, we're to be holy. And at my church back in Manhattan, one of the things that we often talk about, probably as you guys do here on occasion, is there are three areas in which when the gospel comes into your life, it really challenges. And those areas are the use of money, the use of sex, and the use of power. Because our society, our world, has a way of using those things for their own purposes. But the way in which God calls us to use those things is radically different. So the question is, what would it mean to be holy in our use of sex, money, and power. Well, at the very least, it would mean that we use those things in non-destructive, non-selfish, life-giving ways. Why? Is it because Christians are to feel holier than thou and just kind of looking down our noses at people who don't use those things in the way we do? The answer is no. The answer is we're a holy people. We're set apart to God. And God has given us, in his word, direction about how these things are to function and operate within our lives, not so that we can look down our noses at people, but that we might 
better serve them and use these things properly in the way that God has given us to enjoy them. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into each of those and unpack them, but suffice it to say this, a holy use of money, of sex, and of power looks radically different than the ways in which those things are commonly used today. And that would be the purpose of this new community, this radical distinctness in which we're using these things in a way that honors God. But that's not the only thing. If you look also at verse 5, the priests, we're told, are those who offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, that's one of those phrases when you're reading Scripture and you come across that phrase, offer spiritual sacrifices, you say, give me a definition. What does that mean, to offer a spiritual sacrifice? And the answer comes, it's a little clear in verse 9, where Peter says, we are those who declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Now, real briefly, I want to highlight here, this is another important part of what it means to be a priest. To offer a spiritual sacrifice or to declare God's praise literally means to sing. That word declare is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's used all over the place in the book of Psalms. You know, the Psalms are the songbook of ancient Israel. And that word is used constantly in the book of Psalms to describe the ways in which the people of God use their voices to proclaim God's praise. And here's what I want you to know. Every single Sunday when church happens, when you gather together to worship God, there's music. And it can feel perhaps sometimes rote. Sometimes it can feel like the buffer, the time that you arrive and you have a cushion if you, to get here in time for the sermon. It can feel like perhaps warm-up. It's none of those things. To sing together is part of how the church lives out its purpose as a priesthood. Because we use our voices to proclaim God's praise. To say this is who God is and this is what he's done. And in our society, this is one significant and important way that we live out our purpose as priests. Now there's just one other thing that I want to mention about priesthood. So one is holy, the second is we live lives of praise where we're using our voices. The only other thing I want to briefly call your attention to, and we just actually did this a minute ago, is the purpose of the church in prayer. That is to say, priests were those who regularly had to pray on behalf of the nation. The priests were those who had the job of intercession. They were the ones who were regularly bringing to God the needs of Israel. And you see, this is one way that you and I are able to represent our cities, our workplaces, our neighbors, our family members. This is a way that we represent them to God. We bring them before him. Do you know that, for example, in the Old Testament, this is described in Exodus 28, if you wanted to see it later. God says to the high priest, the chief priest, the head honcho of priests, if you would, I want you to construct a breastplate that is a special garment that's going to go over your chest, over your heart. And on that special garment, I want there to be 12 stones, God says. And each of the stones are to represent one of the tribes of Israel. And I want you to have that over your heart. And in Exodus 28, right around verse 30, God says, I want you to do this so that you can bring the people before me always. Now, you and I don't wear special breast pieces with stones on that represent the people that we love and care for. But make no mistake, like priests, we bear these people on our heart. We are called to represent them to God, to bring them to God. 
And one of the ways that we do that is through prayer and intercession. So, for example, when we just had the prayers of the people, that I believe it was Grayson who read, that's not just a perfunctory part of worship. That's part of how we live out our priesthood as we bring before God the needs of our church, our city, and our world. That's what it means to be a priest. Okay, so first, we're an interdependent community. That's who we are. The second, as we've just seen, the purpose of this community is to be a priesthood. But that leads us then, and perhaps you're wondering, who gets to join this community? How do you become part of this community? And that leads us to point three, what I'm calling the strangeness of this new community. The strangeness of this new community. What do I mean? Every single human community that exists in the world has some sort of identifying markers that distinguish the members of the community from those who are not members of the community. Right? Something that you have in common, something that you share together that says you're in the community. And if you don't have this, you're not in the community. All communities have them. Some markers. So the question is, well, what is it that marks those who are in the church? What is it that marks our new community? And in asking that question, we learn something wonderfully strange about this new community. Take a look again at verse 9. You see those two phrases there? You're a chosen people, and then just a bit later, a holy nation. Those words, people and nation, are very significant and, when they're used here, very surprising. And here is why. The Greek word for people is genos, and the Greek word for nation is ethne, right? Genos and ethne. It's where we get our word genes, genetics, or ethnic and ethnicity. Now, one biblical scholar points out that these two words, genos and ethne, nation and people, were always used in Peter's day to describe, a, as this biblical scholar says, to describe a recognizable ethnic group that shared both ancestry and custom. Okay, so typically in Peter's day, to call a people a nation using this word, or a people using these words, was to say you have a shared ancestry, you're a recognizable ethnic group, and you have the same customs. And yet Peter comes along, and he uses these words for the church. And the surprising part is they're not from the same ethnicity. You see that if you read the first part of the letter. They don't have the same ethnic background. They're not from the same place. And in many ways, they don't have the same traditional practices. What Peter's saying to the church is, you're a people who don't actually have the same ethnic background. You don't have the same customs. You don't come from the same places. You don't speak the same language. And yet you're one people. It's as if, if we can put it in really blunt language, it's as if Peter is saying, you've become a new race in Christ. You're a new people. Well, what is it then, if that's the case, if Peter's using these words in this really wonderfully surprising way, what is it that Christians share? What is it that distinguishes them? What do they have in common? The answer is in verse 10. We're a people who have received mercy. How do you become a Christian? You admit your need for mercy. You acknowledge your need for Jesus, the cornerstone, and your dependence on him. In other words, here's what Peter's saying, and other parts of scripture too, but especially here. What Christians have in common is not their ethnic backgrounds, their vocations, their income levels, their languages, their political persuasions, 
or anything else like that. What Christians have in common is there are people who need mercy. And they flung themselves upon Jesus. Now, do you know what that means? If all that Christians, if all that this new community shares in common is a need for mercy, do you realize that that means it can bring together people who otherwise would have nothing to do with each other and yet come together because of their shared need for mercy? The implications of this are massive. Let me give you two examples. In New York, where I work in the city, Uh, we have small groups, probably like you do here, we call them community groups. And there's this one particular community group. Now, normally groups meet uh, in homes for a Bible study. But on this particular night, this group decided to meet in a neighborhood restaurant. Now, this group, I knew many of the members, and the leader was a very close friend of mine. This group was wonderful because it very much described what Peter's talking about. It was made up of people who had different ethnicities. They had very different income levels. They dressed very differently. They talked very differently. And, as you would imagine, with all of those things being the case, they thought about many subjects very differently. Very unique bunch. So here they are in a community. Now, why have they come together? Because they have a need for mercy. They love Jesus. They've been loved by him. So they come together in this neighborhood restaurant and somebody in the restaurant, true story, uh, came over. They never met this person before, but came over to the table and said to the whole group, I'm so sorry to interrupt you guys, but I just have to ask, how is it that you all know each other? How is it? I have no, she's, I've been trying to figure it out and I can't understand what brought you all together. That's what she said. And they began to explain, they were probably a bit taken back, but they began to explain as best as they could, well, we're members of a church and we've come together because of Jesus. And that's it. But it's everything. And you see, my friends, that's quite powerful. It's quite beautiful. And what Peter's saying is this is a strange community because you, this new chosen people, this holy nation, are people who don't have the same ethnic background, same income level, same ancestry. And yet you've come together because of Jesus. Let me give you one other quick example. If the one that I gave you just now was sort of on the ground, that is street level, very basic and practical, this next example is, if you would, in the sky because of its lofty vision. Uh, A couple months ago, I read a wonderful book. It was by a... uh, Professor at Notre Dame and a Catholic priest whose name is Emmanuel Katongale. The book's called Mirror to the Church. And the book is wonderful but extremely heartbreaking because it's about, the book is about the genocide in Rwanda. Uh, as many of you probably realize, this past April marked 20 years since the genocide in Rwanda happened. And as you know, during that genocide, within the span of about 100 days, There were about 800,000 people who lost their life because of conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Those were peoples in Rwanda. The author of the book, Emmanuel Katongale, was born in Uganda, but his father was a Tutsi and his mother was a Hutu. So as you could imagine, this conflict was very personal to him. And in this great book in which he asks questions about identity and the role of the church and many things that I don't have time to go into. But at the very end of the book, he asks the question, is there any hope 
Can there be any healing? I mean, when you look at what happened in Rwanda, and you can think of other places in which peoples have fought, you just look at something like that and you say, what's the point? Like, is there any hope for any of us? Is there any chance for healing? And Katongale says, yes, there can be. If. If the church, if Christians learn to take their deepest, most fundamental identities from this Christian doctrine of community that we're looking at here in First Peter. If we have our deepest identity shaped by the fact that we're a people who need mercy, if that becomes our fundamental identity, then that allows for true peace and reconciliation amongst peoples who would otherwise not only have nothing in common, but would actually often go to war with one another. Now, this is what Katongale said, a man who experienced it. I want to read to you the last part, the very last part of his book. It's quite beautiful. It's a paragraph. Listen, writing about all these things, Katongale says, We are called to be strange in the same way that the early Christian communities were strange to the world around them. Right? Think the lady in the restaurant. How do you know each other? We're called to be strange in that same way. He goes on, the Christian community in Antioch brought together Jews and Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, slaves and free, men and women, in a way that was so confusing that people around them did not know what to call them. So they called them Christians. The only way they knew how to describe this peculiar community was to say that they were followers of an odd preacher from Galilee. And then he closes, the world is longing for such new and odd communities in our time. And he's right. Katongale is right. That is what the world is longing for in our time. And this doctrine of Christian community, bringing together people because of their shared need for mercy, well, that's what the world is longing for. But that then leads us to our fourth question, which leads us to our final point, and that's this. How is it possible if it's true that this kind of community of interdependence and priesthood, that's wonderfully strange because of the diversity with which it brings people together, if that's what the world is longing for, then fourthly and finally, what's the foundation? How can this kind of community exist? And the answer is, well, the foundation for this new community is Jesus, the cornerstone. We've already alluded to it. But what's a cornerstone? Remember, it's the foundation stone. It's the stone that brings unity to the structure. Without the cornerstone, it could not exist. And this passage says, verse 6, Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone. Jesus is our cornerstone. He's the one that brings this new community together. But, as we close, we have to press in a little further and we have to ask, how? How is it that Jesus is the cornerstone of this new community? It's great that he is. We recognize, okay, Jesus is most important. But how is that the case? Well, earlier in our service, we had a scripture reading from Psalm 118. Do you remember? And if you look at here in 1 Peter, verse 7 is actually quoting Psalm 118. Take a look again at that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. Peter here is quoting Psalm 118. 
the passage that we read earlier in our service. Now, why is that significant? Because there's an ancient Jewish tradition that says, back in, in antiquity, there was a certain building project that was taking place. And during that particular building project, the builders, those who were responsible for putting the stones in place, sent a message to the guys at the rock quarry. These were the people who were responsible for cutting the stones and bringing them down to the structure. So pretty early on in this building project, the builders who needed the stones sent a message to the guys at the quarry and they said, guys, you need to send us the cornerstone. We can't continue in this project unless we have a cornerstone, right? That's the first stone. So the guys at the quarry sent word back and said, what are you talking about? We sent you the cornerstone a while ago. You already have it. And then the builders put their heads together and they realized, oh, in that pile of discarded stones, in the rubbish stones, if you would, we threw away the cornerstone. We were given the most important stone, but we didn't realize it. We didn't recognize it. And we threw it away. Now, in ancient Jewish tradition, this teaching is saying, don't make that mistake. Don't be like those foolish builders who threw away the cornerstone, the most important part of the building. That's what Psalm 118 is about. And now here Peter quotes it. But friends, do you not know that this same author, this same Peter, a couple years after Jesus had rose from the dead, was preaching in the book of Acts and there was a group of people in front of him and he said to that group of people, this stone that the builders rejected, that Peter says, you builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. In other words, what's Peter saying? Psalm 118, it's not about a physical structure. It's about the entire building that God is building in the history of humanity. It's about God's plan to save everything. And guess what? You builders rejected the cornerstone. Jesus himself. And it's as if Peter would say to us on this day, it's not just those builders back then, but it's also each one of us. Because do you not know, do I not know, how many times in our lives have we said maybe out loud or at least in our hearts, I don't want Jesus to be my cornerstone because he just doesn't fit the building that I'm building. He doesn't fit with what I'm doing, what I'm about. I'm going to just put him aside. I'm going to reject him, if you would, and get on with my own program. And then in Psalm 118, 1 Peter 2, and all these texts come and say... The stone that the builders rejected, that's the cornerstone. That's the only stone that you need. Now, what does that mean for community? This great idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, the rejected stone that brings us all together, as we'll remember when we come to the Lord's table. What does that mean for Christian community? And here's what it means, real simply. Do you know what the hardest part about community is? It's all the people that we have to be in community with. That's the hardest part. I'm the reason community is hard. And so are you. Because if you want to take this image a little bit further, if we're all stones in a building, we have really rough edges. Really rough edges. 
But there's good news. Because anybody who knows anything about building knows that you don't just put stones on top of each other and say, oh, I hope that building holds together. You know that once the stones are put in place, you have to put mortar between them. Because mortar binds those stones together permanently and beautifully. And what Peter's saying and what this text is teaching is that there is a mortar which binds us together. And that mortar is mercy. What's mercy? It's deserving punishment, but getting grace instead. And Peter says, guess what? Jesus is your cornerstone, but he was rejected. He was cast aside so you could be brought in. And in his being rejected, you've now received mercy. You deserved punishment. You deserve to be discarded. But you've been now given a place in God's new house. You've received mercy. And now you who have received mercy are called to show mercy. You who have been the recipient of God's bringing you in are now able to bring others in to all the rough stones around you. Because there are many of them. And we are one of them ourselves. And yet we who have received mercy are now able in Christ to share that mercy with one another. And thus, that's the foundation for this new community. So there it is. There are many different places that we could turn to in Scripture to see what this new community that we've been brought into is. And First Peter is a rich, rich text, as we've seen together. Let's pray, and then we'll move on to celebrating the Lord's Supper. God, we give you great thanks for this chance to look at this text and consider what our community is. And I pray now as we turn our attention to the table that you would help us to not only see, but actually to feel, to sense how much mercy we've received. And that in sensing that we would be nourished spiritually, that we would be challenged, that we would be changed, and more enabled to live in this great community that you've called us into. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.